the Gospel of John. And I was uh, joking with my family last night. <clears throat> we have our oldest is eight years old, and he's soon to be nine. Uh, but I was telling them, um, when this series is done, he's going to be 10 years old. And so we were kind of thinking about the math with that. It seems like it's going to be forever that it's going on. Uh, and there might be times when it feels like that. But uh, it's a good glimpse of the Christian life at some level as well, that we, uh, there are times that we feel like we're slogging through and we've got to keep pushing and, and so forth. So uh, it's part of, part of our reality. So I want to give just a, kind of a brief intro to this book, and then we'll jump into the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So the book of the Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was written by one of Jesus' disciples, whose name is John, appropriately. And it was written, uh, likely, near the end of the first century. So most people will date it from about 70 to 100 A.D., uh, and there's not a lot more exact dating with that, but that's, that's what is thought uh, in terms of when it was written. It was written to both Jews and Gentiles, and one thing that in one way in which we see the benefit of that is at times John is going to, he'll give a little narrative to kind of explain what he's really talking about. And, and I find that to be extremely helpful because the culture can be so different at times. And so I think that's really helpful uh, when he does that. And we'll, we'll come across some of those instances as we go through this series. Um, typically when we do a sermon series and I do an intro sermon, we don't spend a ton of time going through kind of the historical context or looking at the dating and the author and so forth, uh, those are more technical issues. And, and if that's something that you're just, you really love that stuff, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you or give you resources uh, that I utilize. Um, but we're, we don't spend a ton of time doing that here uh, just for the sake of time. So uh, that's kind of what I want to cover in terms of technical, date, author, and so forth. But a few comments just on the whole structure of the book. What, what we'll find is that the Gospel of John is filled with a ton of narrative, uh, a, a lot of stories. And so it's, it's oftentimes easier to read. Uh, it's not all kinds of laws or genealogy or that kind of stuff, but a lot of stories. And we'll find at times that these narratives can be really long, these really long discourses at some level. And, and so part of the challenge we'll run into from time to time is this reality that uh, we're going to try and cover really big chunks of Scripture. Even this morning, the 18 verses we're looking at, there is so much packed into these 18 verses. Initially, I'd hoped to preach three or four sermons out of just these 18 verses. But when I mapped out this series, I was like, there is no way, there's no way we can spend that many weeks on these 18 verses. So we're going to do all of them at one time. So we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. One other thing about the structure of John is you'll find as we go through this that there's a lot of spiritual language in it. And you might be like, well, of course, it's the Bible. But Jesus talks in ways that I think at times, at first glance, can be really confusing. Like, he'll say, I'm the bread of life. And it's like, what is that, right? Uh, but he talks this way over and over and over. And, and so I'm looking forward for the, or to the opportunity that we can press into some of these things and see the symbolism that Jesus is uh, trying to connect us up to with a lot of these pictures that he paints 
So uh, a ton of spiritual talk in it, uh, and we're going to try and do our best to kind of bring that home in a very practical way to understand what does this mean for us, how do we live this out practically. So this morning, we're going to look at the first 18 verses of John 1, and in this we're going to see some glimpses of Jesus. The subtitle of our sermon series is, Who is Jesus? And so we want to be exploring who this man, who this God-man is, and really wrestle with, with who he is and let him begin to form himself in us. So I'm going to read the first 18 verses. You guys can, if you have a Bible, you can turn there and follow along, or you have a device, you can swipe there, or you can follow along on the screen behind me as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All right. So when it's talking about John in these verses, this is just kind of an aside, it's, it's actually talking about someone by the name of John the Baptist who is different than the author of the Gospel of John. But we're going to talk more about him next week. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four concepts or themes that are inherent in these 18 verses. So the first thing we're going to look at is the first three words, in the beginning. In the beginning. And, and part of what I want to do here is, is just give a little uh, encouragement as to how this helps us read our Bible. So when we read in the beginning right here, part of what John, as he's writing this, is trying to draw us into is Genesis 1. Because the first three words of the Bible are in the beginning. And then it goes on, God created. So, so as we read this, that we should begin to think that there's parallels here. There's, there's dots that are being connected between what John is writing in John 1 and what was written in Genesis 1. So as we read John 1, we should be thinking this way, this fact that he's doing a new thing. Part of what the prophet Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 43, he says, uh, or this is God speaking to him, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers 
in the desert. So part of what John is trying to communicate to us here is God is doing a new thing. And he wants us, he wants readers to perceive this reality. Something new is happening. He's trying to set the stage for that. Now, why is this important, that we make these connections and, and that we understand this reality that, uh, of in the beginning? John's intent in stating this, the fact that Jesus was there in the beginning. He wants us to know Jesus was there. In the beginning, Jesus was there. And there's massive implications for this reality. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him. All things were made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So there's this reality that Jesus was before. Before, as he's going to come, he's going to take on flesh, he's going to be in front of their eyes, but he was also before at some level. And this is not just John giving his own thoughts, but the reality is Jesus said this as well. We read eight, later in the book of John, in John 8, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Abraham was essentially the father of Israel. God called him out so that he would be able to establish his people, his nation Israel, through his line, through Abraham's line. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham, I was. I was there. And this is part of what we're seeing in the beginning. Jesus was there. And part of what we need to see, and it's stated explicitly a couple times in these 18 verses, is the fact that Jesus is God. He's God. And this is going to mess with the Jewish idea of monotheism. So monotheism is the belief that there is one God. Okay? But what's happening is that Jesus is being introduced as God. So Jewish believers would say, yeah, there's Yahweh. There is the one true God. And now Jesus is being identified, this other man being identified as word. He also is God. And we will find as we walk through the book of John, this is why there's so much conflict in Jesus' life. The Jewish leaders cannot reconcile this. We have one true God, and it is not him. It cannot be him, because he's saying he is also God. And so it just throws all of the Jewish people essentially into a tizzy, and they don't know how to handle this. But in Jesus, we see his godness, this fact that he's uniquely related to God. One thing that's really interesting is Jesus is not saying, I'm God and my Father is not. He's saying, I'm uniquely related to him. So he's expanding this idea of what monotheism is. And it still, to this day, blows our minds when we think about this idea of Trinity, that there are three persons in one God. And I think even that points to the fact that he's God. Like, it's beyond us. We can't box this God in. There's parts that we cannot figure out completely. He's beyond us. And, and that's part of, of how he proves that he is God. So we see Jesus' godness in the fact that he's creator. He was there at the beginning. He was creating. 
And as we go through John, we're going to see how he is part of this new thing. He is going to be creating in new ways as well. We see his sovereignty and his power. He's over everything. He is the king over all. And this is how he will speak about himself, how others will testify about him. He is the king. He is the king. There is no other king like King Jesus. And the fact that he is kind. He is good. He gives good gifts. He's creating. He, he wants to give good gifts to his people. And part of the way in which we see this is the fact that Jesus is creating the world that would reject him. Jesus is creating the world that would reject him. And we're all complicit in this, right? At times, we all think that we know better. We are, in our humanity, the same as those who put Jesus on the cross. We think that we know better. And so we could look at Jesus, and many people do this and say, what a dummy. Why would he do that? Why would he do this? Why would he set things up in this way? And ultimately, as we work through the storyline of Scripture, we see it's because he loves. And he wants who he is to overflow to his creation so we might see him for who he really is, knowing that when we see him for who he really is, we will be stirred in the deepest parts of us to worship him and to reflect him. Now, this idea that he would create this world knowing he would be rejected. I, I can understand this. I have four kids, okay? And when we had three kids, uh, and, and we were talking about having another child, like I know when we have this conversation that that means I'm going to be complicit in creating something that will reject me at some level, okay? And by God's good design, he provided a fourth child that I mean, this child is great at rejecting me. I, I don't know what it is, but little sweet Roxy with her cute pigtails, like she just does, she wants nothing to do with me. I will invite her, I will ask her repeatedly, Roxy, can I give you a bath? Nope, mommy. Hey, can, can I feed you? Can I give you something to eat? Nope, Lilo, which is Tyler's name, our eight-year-old. Hey, um, can I put your clothes on you? Nope, 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 nope. And I get this over and over and over. But I will absorb this because ultimately what I want her to know, what I want her to experience is my love. Yeah, I would love for her to not say nope every single time. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think it basically is every single time. But ultimately... I will endure it, not always perfectly, sometimes with impatience, sometimes with frustration, but I will endure that and absorb that because I want her to get a glimpse that I love her. I would lay my life down for her. I would go to the end of the world for that sweet girl. And similarly, Jesus, in an ultimate way, goes to the greatest length for those he has created and those who have rejected him. All right, so Jesus was there in the beginning, and this has massive implications. Now, the next theme I want to look at uh, in these verses is that of word. Word. So the author describes Jesus as word. It, it looks a little confusing when we read it, but 
when, when, it's, when John's writing about the word, he is, he is writing about Jesus himself. So Jesus is the word. What does this mean? Ultimately, it's a title given to Jesus. That's what's being communicated here. He is the word. But when we dig into this idea of word in the Bible, and the biblical storyline as it relates to Jesus, as it really relates to God the Father, there's so much more there. Whatever we find to be true of God's word is true of Jesus. And, and the reality is words mean something, right? So when God talks, he's revealing aspects of his heart, of his character. The same is for us. When we speak, we reveal what's in our hearts. We reveal what's really going on inside of us, what we love, what we hate. And so as we read about God's word in the Bible, we can get glimpses of Jesus. So Isaiah 55 verse 11, God says this, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when thinking about this in terms of Jesus being the word, Jesus is going to go out and he is going to accomplish God's stated purpose. He is going to redeem and save humanity, at least those who trust in him. His life is powerful in the same way that God's word is powerful because he's the embodiment of God's word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So as we go to Jesus, he guides our steps. He leads us in the way that we should go. And the reason we walk down paths of darkness, paths that he doesn't want us to walk down, is because we take our eyes off of him. We trust in ourselves. We trust in other people or other things. And so this is emphasizing the fact that we would be plugged into Jesus, letting him be our lamp and our light. So Jesus embodies the message of God. We see this in verse 18, uh, where uh, Jesus, it says, he makes God known. He has made him known. He makes God known. Or another way that we can say this idea of embodiment is that Jesus is God's word personalized or personified. Uh, so, and we see this in verse 14 when it says, the word became flesh. So part of what we need to understand here is Jesus is making God known. He is allowing us to see the glory and the goodness, the kindness, the justice of God. So when we look at Jesus, we can see his Father, at least glimpses of his Father. He's revealing him to us. So there's all this talk in the Bible about God's word. And Jesus being the word. Uh, but we can expand this out as well. Because if, if this idea of word is so significant for God uh, and his son Jesus, we can expect that this idea of word would be significant for us as, as it pertains to how we live out the Christian life as well. So uh, some of you probably have heard this quote before. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. I'm guessing some, if not all of you, have heard that or some form of it. 
at some time. So uh, it's oftentimes attributed to someone by the name of Francis of Assisi. He said something uh, at least in the same ballpark as this, but it, it really wasn't this, so uh, we really don't know where this came from. But the idea in this is that actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. And, and there is truth in this reality. Oftentimes when we speak fewer words, they carry greater weight, right? And the more words we speak, oftentimes it can mean that they carry less weight. Uh, it's, it's also true that our actions should align with our words. But if we look at the whole testimony of Scripture, this does not reflect well. It doesn't reflect well the witness of John in the Gospel of John, nor the overwhelming uh, testimony throughout Scripture. Because what we find throughout the Bible is that Christianity is word-based. Part of what I mean with this is uh, found in Romans 10, 17. So this is just one verse, but we could go a lot of different places uh, to look at this. But this verse says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So part of what this is saying is that there is supremacy, or there's preeminence with the word of of God. And, and there's something profound that happens when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is proclaimed. It, it's not even something that you can necessarily measure. God has just ordained it in this way that when his word is proclaimed, that people's hearts are stirred, that they're drawn to him in certain ways. And, and it's not something that you can put under your thumb that we can measure in, in certain ways. It's just, it just is. It just happens, and many of you have probably experienced, you heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus proclaimed in some way, and you were drawn to him. And, and you maybe couldn't explain all of it. Th this is part of the reason why we sing songs about Jesus. We are reminding ourselves and each other of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is why we place uh, preaching where it is in our services and why we give a significant amount of time to it because we want to herald, we want to proclaim the good news of Jesus because God has deemed that this is how he works, how the gospel goes forth. And also a piece of this too, uh, an encouragement I give at least somewhat regularly, uh, this is how the gospel advances through each of us in the relationships that we have with other people. And I know oftentimes we can be intimidated with this idea of sharing the gospel with our coworkers, our neighbors, or whomever it might be, because I think Many times we've gotten this idea that we've got to have this amazing theological treatise. And, and we've got to have all of these, uh, our, all of our theologies worked out in such a way that we can answer every question. But part of proclaiming the good news, a big part of it, my encouragement to all of you would be just to share your story. How the gospel story has captured you. How these two realities intersect. You share your story. You don't need to share all the eschatological uh, theologies and have all of those figured out and, and think that that is what is going to draw someone to Jesus. Maybe. But mostly, primarily, 
a high 90% of the time, what will draw people to Jesus is your story. You telling them how God has worked in your weakness, how he has drawn you despite your sin. And that will be good news to them because they can understand weakness. People can understand brokenness because it's a massive part of all of our reality. And so this is part of proclaiming the gospel, of heralding the good news in everyday, very practical language. And this is what we want to be about in all that we do, whether it's here at Center Church or it's in our lives. Okay, so throughout John's gospel, we are going to see the power of Jesus' word exemplified. We're going to see crazy things happen through Jesus speaking the words of God. And we're going to be called to hear it, to know it, and ultimately to trust in it. All right, the third theme is that of light. And specifically, specifically, light being epitomized in Jesus. So remember, these 18 verses, they're being spoken in the context of creation. In the context of creation. So I want to think about light as it pertains to creation and, and ask, what can we learn from Genesis 1? What can we learn here in John 1 as when we reflect back on Genesis 1 and, and what happened there? So uh, on the screen, it's going to be super hard to read. I didn't even look at this, but it's going to be it's very hard to read. So we're not going to read that, okay? So don't worry about it. But, but look at that and see how throughout this, God is repeatedly saying that he, he, he saw that it was good. And this idea that things were very good. So he would create, and he would look at what he would, had done, and he's saying it is good, or it was good. We see even uh, up near the beginning, it says the light was good. So God is repeatedly stating this. Now, if you look really closely throughout this first chapter of Genesis, you'll notice that there's one thing that God does not say it is good. You know what it is? It's darkness. He never says darkness is good. So already here, we're getting hints at what is to come. He has created, he has made all these good things, but darkness is not good. And, and we should be able to acknowledge this reality. Throughout Scripture, darkness is identified with evil and with sin. Darkness depicts how sin causes us to see wrongly, how we do not see clearly. I mean, you think about uh, what happens with Jesus' life, right? We have a nation, a bunch of people who are looking for a Messiah. Hundreds of years, they are looking for this individual, and he comes, and they can't see it. He's right there. They do not see him rightly. And so we should feel the gravity of this. This is true for all of us. We do not see clearly. We don't see clearly. We fail to see the ways in which God intends for us to see. Now Jesus will say later on in John, he'll say, I am the light of the world. 
I am the light of the world. And then in verse 9 of our passage today, he is referred to as the true light. The true light. So on the flip side of this, we, we can know that there's a false light, right? So we can't just assume that whatever we want or whatever we see, that that is going to be from God. That that is what God desires for us in some way. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen states this. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So Satan is seeking to look in such a way that it seems like God, but he is not. Because what Satan ultimately wants to do is he wants to deceive us. And then the second step of deceiving us is to destroy us. And so this is part of our reality. Then John 3.19 says, Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And, and I think, if we just look culturally, a lot of people have an idea of what the light is, of what it might mean to live in the light, of what it, of what it means to do the right thing at some level, uh, what it means uh, to be free, to find freedom, to have equality at some level. People have ideas of what that really means, but oftentimes, if you probe that and you push on that, it, it, it still is who can shout the loudest, right? Because what we can oftentimes find on both sides of any coin is people will demean. They will exude darkness at some level so that their voice is heard, so that their personal light, whatever it might be, will shine brighter. So part of the encouragement for us in this is that we would soak in the gospel. If Jesus is the light, we must know him. We must know who he is is. We must know what he would determine to be freedom. How does he define freedom? What does it look like for someone to be free as Jesus says? What does it mean for someone to fight for equality as Jesus would say? And then align ourselves with that. So darkness, we could say, is the absence of Jesus. Darkness is where Jesus is not at some level, at some level. And this is not good. Now, Jesus, his desire for us is for our joy. He wants our good, okay? But we all should feel weight in this when we look at our own lives and ask ourselves, where is darkness in our lives? Or where is Jesus not in our lives? So as it pertains to, to anything, what, your money, is Jesus there? Does he shape how you view money, how you spend your money? Is Jesus absent as it pertains to your money or, or your time? When you look at your calendar, how you spend time each week, each month, each day, is Jesus in that or is he absent? Does he get to shape what that looks like? How we speak about others, the way that we drive, our 
jobs, whatever it might be, where is darkness or where is Jesus not? The reality is all of us have areas of our hearts that are dark. We've tried to wall off at some level and say, Jesus, don't go there. Don't go there. You can go anywhere you want, but not there. And Jesus wants it all. He wants to shine his light in every facet of our lives. He wants all of us. He wants his light to drive out any darkness that there might be in us. And he will do that because he's called the true light. Now, he is called the true light. We are not called the true light. And this is substantial. If we think about creation, when God created in those six days, he made a greater light and he made a lesser light. So the sun is the greater light, the moon is the lesser light. We think about this. There's, there is no light in the moon, right? The only light that we see on the moon is as it, it's reflecting the sun. And, and this is one of those instances where we can look in nature and we can see the gospel, okay? We are not called to reflect Jesus by cleaning our lives up, by following all of these spiritual disciplines and making ourselves impressive, We are called to reflect the true light, to let him pierce the darkness of our hearts. And and a big piece of this comes through his church. This is part of what the church is intended to be. It's, It's intended to be a people and a gathering where we can bring our junk where we don't feel like we need to take our skeletons and shut them up in the closet so that we can be accepted in front of others. At some level, we're all a mess. We are all a mess. And I want to push against the cultural ideal that says, clean yourself up. Prove yourself acceptable. Because the, the culture just sways us. It swims in this direction. And so we have to push against this. Otherwise, we just breathe this air and we go with the whole stream of where culture is going. You should not feel like you have to be put together when you come here. This is for the broken. This is for the hurting. Jesus wants to shine his light into whatever darkness there is in your life. And here's the reality. There's a huge promise in these verses. And that is the reality that darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcome Jesus' light. And it will not. It will not. The darkness of this world, of evil, of sin, of Satan, will never overtake the light of Jesus. Now it might seem like it at times. We look at Jesus on the cross, right? It seems like... Man, it seems like darkness wins. But he blows that away. His light explodes through the darkness of the grave. And he conquers even death. So there are times, and I'm sure some of you feel this this morning, where it feels unbelievably dark. 
almost to the point where it feels like your breath is being restricted and you don't know where to turn, what to do, where hope. Is there even hope? And, and this is a promise for those of you and for all of us, all the days of our lives. Darkness cannot hold the light. The true light will drive out darkness. And what Jesus is calling us to is to stay in the light, to draw near to him, be near to Jesus and his church. Leave yourselves exposed, vulnerable, teachable, humble. Don't hide your junk, whether it's your sin or it's just brokenness around you. Had a number of examples, one of them with a, a good friend that have just happened in the last number of weeks where I see the destructiveness of sin and, and how it wrecks not only those committing sin, but those who are in the ripple effect of someone else's sin and how it tears people apart and it destroys relationships. And so don't hide it. You guys, if it's me, if it's a friend, if it's someone else, let light shine on it. Don't hide it. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt those you love. So let Jesus' light shine into your darkness. We want to be a place where brokenness is normal, where it's okay to be not okay at some level. All right, last theme here. There's a couple times in these 18 verses where Jesus is referred to once as the only son and another time as the only God. And I don't think this is a bad translation, but uh, when you look at some of the language behind this, I think probably a better way of wording this would be one-of-a-kind son and one-of-a-kind God. And if you look at this wording and you look other places in the Bible, the main place where we see this kind of language is in the Old Testament. And it pertains to another son, and his name was Isaac. So we talked about Abraham earlier being the father of Israel, and God had made promises to Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation, and that his descendants would be more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the shore. And Abraham was late in life, and he's looking at his life, and he's childless. And he's like, what is going on here? And he is worried that he is going to have no heir, that there is, his line is not going to continue. In Genesis 15, uh, God comes to Abraham, and he says this, and notice it's, it's the word of the Lord, so when we hear this, uh, we should think power, we should think truth. This is going to happen. So God comes to Abraham, and it says, the word of the Lord came to him. Your very own son shall be your heir. So God is reasserting his promise. You will have a son, 
But years pass, and it doesn't happen. Abraham falters in his belief. And his wife, Sarah, is complicit in this. She's like, this is not happening. God's not moving. We've got to take matters into our own hands. So what she says is, I've got this maidservant, and her name is Hagar. Go and make a baby so that your line can continue. So Abraham does it. He goes, and and a baby is born, and he introduces into his family complete chaos and train wreck because he thought that he could not wait on God. He had to take matters into his own hands. That sound familiar for any of us? Just me? All right. So this is Abraham's reality. He jacks up everything in his life. But what does God do? He comes to him, and he reasserts his promise. And at 99 years old, Abraham is interacting with God. And he looks at all that's going on and what God is telling him, and he laughs. As if to say, as if? Like, that's going to happen? I'm a 99-year-old dude. This is not going to happen this is what God does. He paints things into a corner in such a way that we look at it and we say, there is no other way. There is no other way except for God to miraculously intervene. And that is what God does. And he provides a son whose name is Isaac. Now many years pass, and God comes to Abraham again. He's going to test Abraham. He's going to ask him to sacrifice his son. Now, let me be really clear about this part of Scripture. Uh, This is a specific, unique example. No one here, whether you have children now, you will have children later in your life, will never be asked to sacrifice your child. This happened for a specific reason. So, God asks Abraham sacrifice his only son, his one-of-a-kind son. And Abraham follows. He trusts that God is going to do something that he cannot see in that moment. And so he gets to the point where he is over his son Isaac with a knife, and God says, stop. And he says, now I see that you trust me. And what we see in Isaac being a one-of-a-kind son is he's foreshadowing. He's foreshadowing a greater Isaac who will be the ultimate, greater, one-of-a-kind son. Both of these sons are sons of promise, but Jesus is the ultimate, one-of-a-kind son and God. He is the ultimate son of promise who will come He will die in the way that Isaac did not have to die. He will be sacrificed for his enemies. And then he will conquer sin and hell and death. And even in that, we see that darkness does not win. But this picture that we see of Jesus in these first 18 verses throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the Bible at large is one of greatness. And there is this call for us 
say, Behold, our God, Jesus, who came to his own people, and they did not receive him. They rejected him. Behold, Jesus, who came into this world to overwhelm darkness with his glorious light, to bring life amidst death, specifically life through his own death, to bring fullness to those who are empty, to to replace law with grace and truth, to create new beginnings in the face of dead ends, to make orphans his children, to bring sight where blindness pervades, to give and to give grace upon grace to those who seek to cheat and steal from him. No one has ever seen a God like this. No one has ever seen a son like Jesus. He is one of a kind. And whether you feel it this morning or not, whether you acknowledge this reality or not, this is what you yearn for. Jesus is who our hearts are aching for. He is the answer to our questions. He is the resolution to our problems. He is the drink to our thirst. He is what you need. So we're going to we come to this point uh, in our sermon where we talk about application. And oftentimes when we, or in any sermon, this is a point where um, a pastor would say, these are steps that you can take home with you, you can work on these, you can do these things. And and we do things a bit differently here. Uh, We call this gospel application, and, and what we really want to do in this time is we want you guys to understand as you leave here today, as you live your lives throughout this week, it's not primarily about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done, who he is, and the continual calls to look at him and to trust in him. And then what you do, that will take care of itself. He will compel you to live in such a way that brings glory to him, that brings joy to you. But what he wants us to do is to look at him and to trust in him. And so when we look at these first 18 verses of John, there's one thing that we don't see. We don't see a list of ethical commands. We don't see all of these imperatives to say, go do all of these things. What we're seeing here is a glimpse of Jesus. This is who he is. Look at him. Marvel. He is a great God. So there's no list here that says, go do all these different things. Look at Jesus. Marvel at his love for you. Look at how he has sacrificed on your behalf, how he has done what you could never do, what you could never do in and of yourselves. So God's glory is seen in Jesus' works. And the reality is, the less we know of Jesus' works, the less we'll be able to see his work in us and around us and experience his presence in our own lives. So a couple of verses here. Verse 17 
Uh, it says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law, and this is Old Testament law, so there's tons of food laws, uh, laws about rituals, but also includes the Ten Commandments. So all Old Testament laws. What it says in Hebrews is that Jesus is making all of that obsolete. He's doing away with all those things because he's saying, I fulfilled those laws. I did what you could never do. So trust in me. And, and what we see Jesus doing here is he's creating a new and better way. He, the, the command for us is not, look at the Ten Commandments and follow these as best as you can. He did that. He did that for us. We can never do that perfectly. As soon as we break one of them, we've broken all of them, and we're toast. So he's saying, I have done what you could not do. And then verses 12 and 13, it's talking about becoming children of God. And it says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is saying, it doesn't matter your physical birth. It doesn't matter your ethnic descent. It doesn't matter the human effort that you exert trying to climb a ladder to God or whatever that might be. You become God's children because God rescues you, because God comes to you. And he does that because he loves you. So there's no list of commands to do as you leave here other than what we see in verse 12. Receive and believe. Receive and believe. Look at Jesus, how he, the word, is the ultimate disclosure of God, how he's revealing God to us, how he loves how he pours out his life for you. Receive that good gift and believe on his beautiful, wonderful, powerful name. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity that we can see these glimpses of who Jesus is. God, I pray that as we leave here today that you would mine these truths into our hearts, that you would give us a vision of the glory of Jesus, that we would understand how, how he has worked throughout history that impacts how we live today. Help us to know you, King Jesus. Help us to trust you. Help us not to reject you or what you have done in any way. Help us to receive. Help us to believe. Help us to know the good news of Jesus, the greatest news in this world, in all of history. You are king. You are what we yearn for. So God, draw us to yourself as only you can. In your great name, I pray. Amen. We're going to sing a few more songs here so you guys can Go ahead and stand with us. If anyone would like to take communion uh, during this set of songs, please feel free to do that.